Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to Novel Dialogue, a new podcast sponsored by the Society for Novel Studies. I'm one of your hosts, Arthi Vade. John Plotz is my co-host and partner in crime. If you are new to the show, here's the premise. Novel Dialogue invites a novelist and literary critic to talk about novels from every angle, how we read them, write them, publish them, and remember them. We aim to bring you, our listeners, friendly and sophisticated dialogues that dissect the art of novel writing and consider the influence of characters, plots, and stories on how we think about our world. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to Novel Dialogue on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I have two sci-fi geeks in the virtual studio. We're all proud to be geeks here. Right, guys? (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Excellent. (laughs) Jerry Canavan is our critic. He is the author of Octavia E. Butler, A Comprehensive Study of the Great Writer's Works, He is also the co-editor of The Cambridge Companion to American Science Fiction and hosts his own terrific podcast called Grad School Vonnegut. Cameron Hurley is our intrepid novelist and has made a name for herself with dark and thrilling novels like The World Breaker Saga and most recently the Hugo-nominated The Light Brigade. She is also the author of The Geek Feminist Revolution, which was my first encounter with Cameron's writings, and I was so impressed by its range. She calls out misogyny within the sci-fi community, offers an unflinching defense of women and people of color within these fandoms, and is just brutally honest about what it takes to make it as a writer on this scene. So I'm really excited for the conversation today, and I pass the mic over to you, Jerry. Hi, Cameron. Thanks for doing this. I wanted to start by asking you a million questions about The Light Brigade, um, (laughs) which I really love. for, for people who haven't uh, encountered it yet, obviously you should stop the podcast, go read the entire book and, and then come back. Um, but it's a it's a kind of parody or satire of Starship Troopers that brings in a, a bunch of really interesting stuff about time travel. And this time reading it, I even I even kind of got a little vibe of kind of like Kim Stanley Robinson's Mars books and revolution in it. Um, so I wanted to talk to you about everything in regard, regarding this book, um, but I wanted to start asking you a little bit about its composition because you've been pretty honest about um, where this book came from and how you put it together. And I, I have so many questions about your composition project and about utopia and hope punk, which is a term you've kind of started to use to describe your work. So maybe could you tell us a little bit about where this book came from? So uh, I actually wrote a short story called The Light Brigade. It was one of the first stories I did for the backers for my Patreon. Uh, And what ended up happening was uh, I love military science fiction. I adore it. It's a lot of it is very fascist and sexist and has as many problems, but I think it's wonderful. Uh, I enjoy, I enjoy the things that are not those things. 
Um, <laughs> and what I realized is that, uh, you know, after I'd written that short story, I thought, you know, I really do have a military science fiction book in me. It's just a matter of, you know, when am I going to write it? And my agent actually read that story and said, this voice is really great. I think this would be a really fun book to do is their second book, because I had done a two book deal for Stars or Legion and an untitled second with my publisher. And, uh, and I said, you know, that's a great idea. I would love to do something with um, with that. Now, what happened was I was supposed to be writing another book before this book. And then the election happened in 2016. And I spent three months drinking and reading all of the Alphabet series by Sue Grafton <laughs> the last three months. And then once, once I had processed, right, that's my process, read a bunch of books and drink a lot. Um, then it was like, you know what? I want to write a fuck you book. I want to write like the military science fiction book that I feel we need and deserve and all want in this moment. Um, and yeah, I, and I said, you know what, I'm just going to go balls out. I'm going to have these long monologues because my background is also in the history of war and resistance, um, and, uh, propaganda. Uh, so that, that fascinated me and I already had a ton of work to draw from, uh, having done a, a master's degree in that. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of it I wrote, and again, that I think it was 2017, I want to say it was sometime in 2017, writing that book and just being like, I'm just going to lay it all out. And I'm not going to be afraid about there's too much politics in my science fiction, because if you think Starship Troopers isn't political, you're hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it really was. It was kind of my my love letter for military science fiction and my uh, raging against kind of the tropes and expectations we have with military science fiction. So. so, so it did, it did start in some ways from that place of grief. I, you had tweeted just a couple days ago that, you know, we're recording this at the beginning of January in 2021. And it's <laughs> been like, everyone needs to know. Yeah. yeah oh, um, God, help a, us all. Two God weeks of, <laughs> two weeks of absolute chaos. Um, and so you you had mentioned on Twitter that you were thinking of, you know, in two years from now, maybe a book will come out that processes my feelings mm -hmm. uh, from this. So so it sounds like a lot of this was processing the Trump election. There's so much post-truth in the novel. Mm -hmm. um, where did where did the kind of idea of, of kind of remixing Starship Troopers so closely, or at least in those early chapters, kind of come in? Like, is it just that you like that book or love that book or love, hate that book? Um, so this is Starship Troopers and also I think uh, The Forever War, because which is an older book and, and people don't know as much about, uh, which is a much more, uh, I want to say, I don't want to, it's not really leftist, but it was leftist for the time, I guess, much more of a uh, critique of the military uh, than, I, than I think Starship Troopers is. I love, now I've read the book, obviously, uh, but I love the movie. I love the satire. I love <laughs> him going again, that just, yeah. yo, well. I, I, here's what I can do to help, you know, do your part. I love the propaganda stuff. Obviously, again, yeah. academic uh, interest in that. And um, so, yeah, so I think it, it uh, you know, there's, there's a couple of things. Now, the, it, by following that particular structure, uh, especially in the beginning, it's a very familiar structure to readers. And I like to bring readers into my weirdness in a slow way so that by the time all the time travel starts, right, 40,000 words in, they have something to cling to. Like, again, even my dad read this book, which is amazing, but he reads war books. And so he's like, oh, it's a war book. And so could understand it in that way, whereas some of these like bug magic and uh, shapeshifters, I don't understand. Um, but this he could really sink his teeth into because it follows a very familiar structure. So there was also that of me saying, I want to write a non-sexist, non-racist, non-homophobic, 
military science fiction book, which is way harder than you would think. <laughs> we have all these tropes, right? Of how the drill instructors speak and all of these things. Um, and so interrogating my own uh, expectations of how a military uh, would or should or could be was also very interesting as far as an exercise. Uh, and that's what I like to to do to myself too, is say, okay, now let's interrogate your own expectations and your own thoughts about what could be really different. So, um, yeah. Were there any um, female writers or filmmakers that you looked to for this? Or did you feel like you were really engaging with a male tradition and you were subverting that male tradition? I think uh, a lot of it was, definitely came from the old school stuff, which is primarily very, you know, male heavy. Um, I, I did watch like a ton of, uh, the like $10 million sci-fi movie B movies on Amazon at this point in my time as well. Cause I was just, just, you know, reading it. But, um, I think uh, if you're looking at like, uh, feminist writers who would influence that probably Joanna Russ, honestly. Mm-hmm. I um, love Joanna Russ. yeah, just because she has that very non-apologetic badass yeah. sensibility when it comes to these things. And I, uh, you know, a lot of people uh, ask me about influences and she, to me was a really big one because she was the more radical than Ursula, mm-hmm. uh, and, and just was, was real willing to burn it all down mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> for a good reason. Uh, so yeah. So I think, I mean, if we're looking at I, I do look to a lot of Golden Age stuff, so probably, yeah, Joanna Russ is, is probably the one that's definitely in there for sure. I hadn't been thinking about The Forever War, but uh, that book, I, I like that book, but it has mm-hmm. that very strange um, homophobic section where um, yeah. the characters return to Earth after their kind of generational uh, trip back from the stars, and um, the relationship between heterosexuality and homosexuality has flipped. And um, most people are now homosexuals. Heterosexuality is kind of uh, criminalized or at least kind of strongly disencouraged. And so they join up and go back to the war or whatever, right? Or or fly off to the stars. I can't remember what part of the novel Mm -hmm. comes in. Was that part of the, um, I hadn't thought about that as part of the architecture of the Light Brigade, right? But the book is, has so much about queerness in it. And, and, you know, this is a spoiler work for two pages from the end, but if you, um, hadn't realized that the character's gender is never tagged until two pages from the end of the book. Um, it's, you know, the book is not only very queer, but queer in the, maybe the opposite way that some of the readers would have expected, right. In terms mm-hmm. of, of what sorts of relations were happening. Was that in your mind as part of trying to like work through this space? It was certainly uh, the homophobia in the military uh, was a big one that I think about. Uh, I have cousins and friends and uh, things in the military uh, who struggle with that, especially before Don't Ask, Don't Tell, which is a piece of shit. But uh, again, ruined, ruined people's lives, absolutely destroyed their lives. I had a cousin who wouldn't say anything uh, about their partner because he just couldn't until Don't Ask, literally Don't Ask, Don't Tell, they re- repealed it. And it was like, oh yeah, we've been going out for, and we're like, yeah, we know. <laughs> uh, but no, it, it destroys people and it, it really sucks. So I, again, it was important to me for uh, to have a non- homophobic, like I said, non-sexist, non-racist uh, military, just to see what it looked like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not, not just, just to see what it would look like. Hey, what would that look like? Uh, how would you insult people? And it's all your child, your ghoul, and ends up being, you know, very classist, um, which has intersections with racism in this world too. Um, but it was it was very much uh, something on my mind, uh, especially looking at the military, uh, the history of the military, um, and uh, the conversations going on today, for sure. How did the gender decision come about to 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 obscure the character main character's gender 
in the book uh, in that way. Was that a conversation you had with your editor at some point? Did they like it or not like it? It was one of those things where I, because it's an I, a first person narrator, I didn't think about it much until maybe halfway through I realized, you know, I haven't really gendered this character. And I thought, you know what, it doesn't matter. I don't care. Um, and then my agent had said, you know, and then I thought, well, at the end, you know, I want to use your real name because you're kind of repersoning someone who's been depersonalized, right? Mm -hmm. Who's I'm a soldier, I'm a grunt, I'm this and that. And it's then we use her first name. Um, and I did specifically choose uh, a female first name because I did want to say definitively, I didn't want it to be. And that's the thing, like John Scalzi wrote, um, what was it? Locked in. And it was, hey, Chris could be a man or woman, and there was never a tag, and it could be anything. And I was like, no, I don't want that out. I want people to go, who thought of this as a guy the whole way through, maybe. Most people think it's a woman. Uh, Kara G does the audio. Uh, people who have read me before are like, it's probably woman. But there happens people legitimately surprised who were like, I didn't even consider that. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, that to me is an interesting reading experience to give to somebody, um, to say, why did I assume one way or another? It, it, it reminded me of something Octavia Butler did pretty commonly, which was not to give a racial tag, uh, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. 40 or 50 until 40 or 50 pages in. Right. Um, again, many readers would presume Very because similar. Of her background, mm -hmm. uh, but it also reminded me of um, Delaney's reading of Starship Troopers, where he talks about a scene in the book where uh, Johnny Bravo takes off his mask and reveals himself to be Filipino, which mm -hmm. is not actually a scene in the real novel. It's just something that Delaney remembered. Um, but he remembered it as being like really intensely personal to him. Um, I, you know, I, I know Isaiah Lavender has like searched to try to figure out what specifically Delaney was remembering. And there are little moments that could be like that, but yeah. um, it's the moment he remembers in the mirror doesn't actually appear in the novel, but it, it appears in Delaney's reading of the novel. Um, and so it reminded me of that too, right? Like the discovery yeah. that one, one could find oneself in this novel in an mm -hmm. interesting place. I, I don't know. I, I, um, I just want to point out that this is a trend that's getting talked about so much in contemporary uh, literary fiction, where literary is like the market category, not necessarily like an indicator of quality. And it was happening for such a long time in sci-fi, but I don't think mm -hmm. it was talked about with the same uh, <laughs> discourse because now there, because of the Obama era, there was a post-identity moment and now we're <laughs> really coming back from that. Mm -hmm. And um I'm just thinking about, you know, Teju Cole's work in Open City mm. or a trust exercise just recently with Susan Choi. And Colson you know, Whitehead does it in zone one. In zone uh -huh. one, right. And so mm. I'm wondering if this is something they're picking up from genre and never quite got credited, or if it's just it's getting talked about because it's happening in a mainstream publishing kind of world. I, I was thinking about um your I think it won the Hugo, the We Have Always Fought essay. Yeah. Was, yeah. Um that that talks about this kind of thing in a different way, right? That that there's a kind of constant process of, of re-erasure of women's participation in the military uh, and and other industry as well. I, I On the Vonnegut podcast, we just did one where uh, from a story from 1950, the main character is a male who's working alongside a woman. She's not a genius. She's not exceptional. She's just a mathematician who works with other mathematicians. And it's like that moment in 50 by 60, she would have had to have been an exceptional, unique mm -hmm. and probably frigid woman who, mm -hmm. you know, really was just there because she was deficient in other ways, right? Like we constantly have to like remake a world that excludes women from these spaces they've always been in. So uh, it works in that way too, right? Like it's it's not surprising, right? In mm -hmm. from another perspective. Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if you remembered or were thinking about that essay, but it's a really good essay. People should seek it out. Uh, <laughs> it's still out there. <laughs> it's still out there. No, it is. Uh, my agent actually once said to me, she's like, 
She's like, I have a feeling this is what you're always going to be known for. And I said, if that's my legacy, I'm cool with it. <laughs> cool with that being my, my legacy because it is a great, you know, anytime this comes up, I see it slapped down in comments all the time. People are like, oh, women never did. And they're like, bam. <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think about it a lot. I mean, that's that's like I said, my my academic background, that's what I've been very interested in. And I think it it was um, that moment for me when I was going through uh, historical records for the Afro National Congress, the ANC in South Africa. Mm-hmm. And I saw that Mkontoe Sizwe really was like 25 to 30 percent women in their in their in their, you know, militant you know section of the of the ANC. And I was like. Why then, and every resistance, and then I went to other resistance movements, and sure enough, you look at 20 to 30%. I was like, well, then why, if we're doing realism all the time, aren't we doing one in four, one in five of the resistance people in, say, Rogue One mm-hmm. should be women instead of a singular woman, <laughs> historically, to be accurate? Mm-hmm. Um, so I do. I do think about it a lot. Uh, and in fact, you know, writing Light Brigade was interesting because I just come off writing Stars or Legion where everybody's a woman. So it actually felt like there were a lot of dudes in it. <laughs> <laughs> I have to ask you, because my own academic background is um, literature is from the British Empire. So I was really mm. interested in that essay and the fact that you had gone to South Africa and done your research there. And Robin Island pops up in yeah, um, the Light Brigade. And I... Yeah was wondering if that was um, connected back to, you know, your time there and to the legacy of anti-colonial resistance, anti-apartheid resistance, um, Mandela, obviously, you can't Mm -hmm. think about Robben Island without Mandela. And so just the role that other parts of the world have played in what could also feel like a very American novel. Mm -hmm. Um, Living in South Africa was really important and transformative for me, especially uh, as someone from a small white rural town. Um, my, I was of course raised in the white person way, which is, oh, that was all in the past and people just need to work harder and we all love each other now. And there was something about going somewhere else and taking, just as what science fiction is for, and going somewhere else and taking it out of the context of your, that you see and you've been immersed in every day and looking at it from a different perspective and going, oh shit. Um, and I think that, you know, living there for a year and a half or so and researching that place and starting to compare, um, that in the United States, um, really helped me understand the world a lot more. And so it does, it comes out. Um, I did, I took a trip to Robben Island and it was very affecting to me. So let's, let's talk about Hope Punk. I, I know that's, that's not your term, but it's one you've kind of embraced a little bit mm. and talked about uh, in different ways. Can you, can you talk a little bit about what Hope Punk is and why you like it? Um, Hope Punk is kind of goes along with my idea of being grimly optimistic. And <laughs> to me, that's understanding that the odds are against you, but there are still, there's still hope. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, that's that kind of realism that, hey, life is hard and you have to be persistent, but there's real joy and good uh, that can be done and people can change. Uh, and there is a future ahead is really important for me. And has really, honestly, it has been, um, I'm gonna try to think when I finished Broken Heavens, I think it's especially since the election, again, since the 2016 election, there was that I had to convince myself to keep going every day because I've seen fascism, I've seen totalitarianism, I, I know 
how this I knew where we were going. Literally, <laughs> 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 in the last few weeks, uh, it's like it was almost a relief because the other shoe is dropping, right? That I've been mm-hmm. waiting for this whole time. Um, so, so I knew it was coming, and I am saying we can get through this and 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 find something on the other side of this and there's a future on the other side was super important to me personally mm-hmm. um and i know i know from hearing from fans and stuff too very important for them as well it's been a, a very dark time i understand and again understandably so which is one thing that um i really liked about having that background in history um, my grandmother grew up in world war ii in nazi occupied france my grandfather was a gi he drove you know, trucks of the bodies out of the camps. He was cleaning up Europe, you know, for like seven or 10 years after they were married. Um, it was a horrific time and it felt very close to me because they watched me. They looked after me my first, uh, until I was 12, I think, because my parents worked. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was close to me in a way that it's not as close to a lot of, you know, late Gen Xers, old millennials. Um, so, so yeah, it was, it was, it's a big deal to me to be like, yeah, there's dark stuff. And there's dark stuff and a lot of people don't get through it, mm-hmm. but a lot of people do. Jerry. And that, the, that's important. Oh, sorry. For the listeners, could you just tell us more about Hope Punk? Like whose term, who, who coined it? I actually don't know who coined it. So it, it was, uh, yeah. it was an essay that came out naming it. And then there was a kind of immediate sort of rejection of the term. Um, it's, uh, it's kind of paralleling, the idea of cyberpunk or steampunk, mm-hmm. right? And there's something really nice about that idea of like hope's not a muscle or something. It's a it's a technology. Um, it's Alexandra. It's a verb. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, Alexandra Rowland's term, and she was the one who started mm-hmm. it. And then there was a kind of like I said, a kind of immediate backlash, and then a kind of immediate um, debate around whether or not hope punk was something we would add to our canon of cyberpunks and steampunks and solar punks and all these other kinds of uh, punk movements what's wrong with hope it's not gritty enough yeah exactly i mean it's out of serious enough (laughs) yeah is out of step in some ways with the, the that kind of dark gritty turn that's defined mm-hmm. a lot of the genre. I mean, this is it's coming out of like a kind of Game of Thrones moment mm-hmm. in the genre where everything has to be the worst version of itself in some in some way. Um, I, I I don't know. It's 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 an it, like I said, it's an interesting way to kind of um, think about hope as something that you could operationalize right and tap mm-hmm. and turn into uh something that we could we could do together I, I was kind of curious if if you felt it constrained you to like now you have to be hope punk like now you can't you you can't have a book that has a sad ending or a book where they all die or something like that um uh, it does it does it constrain you or is it just that it's just an ethos that you embody and you're, you're you would never write a book like that anyway so uh somebody once asked me what is a cameron hurley book and I said, and that was something I had to start thinking about is what am I interested in writing about? And I'm like, what people are going to get from a Cameron Hurley book experience is there will be no sexual assault against women. There will be tons of very badass, complex female characters. Um, and there'll be wild world building, like stuff you've never seen before. And those three things are very important to me. The rest of it, everybody can die at the end, um, you know, whatever. I mean, I write a short story every month for Patreon, so a lot, there, there are some dark endings. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people have actually said that the next books seem very dark, my God's War series. Uh, I actually think the fact that anyone is alive at the end of any book is is pretty nice. I'm very British in my sensibilities when it comes to that. Oh, so it's alive. It's, it's hopeful. Um, 
But um, and I think I think it really depends on the time. Uh, the the ending of my uh, World Breaker saga was going to be very very different before the election, mm-hmm. very very dark and terrible. Uh, and I actually, the more that the world changed around me, the more I was like, I want to um, promote a different idea that there are more than two choices that you don't actually have to make the worst possible choice of, or the, there's only two choices. They're both bad. You have to make one bad choice. But if there's more than that, you know, we need to think beyond that. And the problem is we're stuck in this very partisan, right? Very, there is this road or this road, and that's all that there is. Um, there's this future or this future. Um, and it was more important to me to, interrogate that narrative so so how has patreon changed the landscape then for Um, for you and for the field so some a lot of people don't understand with patreon and with anything if someone's (laughs) talking about this with only fans as well you are bringing your audience to a platform absolutely that platform is not creating an audience for you and i think that is uh people look at that and they think of a chicken egg oh if i just is like oh i'm gonna put a story up on amazon or a book up on amazon and i'm gonna be a millionaire well the chances of that are very low. I do know someone who's done that, but the chances are very low. Uh, and, uh, you know, you're, you have to find a way to cultivate that audience in other ways. And mm-hmm. I have cultivated an audience for a very long time. It's very conscious because I do have a bar- background in marketing um, and advertising. So it's very conscious that I need to build an email list. I need to reward fans. Like I would do giveaways and stuff all the time. Um, I, I was already used to sending out packages of things to, oh, you did a pre-order. And so you get all this, this, and this. So I've been doing that for a long time. So when I saw Patreon, I said, okay, let me soft launch this to my email list. I had an email list. Um, and I said, you know, if we can get to at least $500 a month for a story, that's worth it to me. That's mm-hmm. about what I would get, you know, going to a, a decent publication for it, even who was short. Uh, and we got to 250, like within couple of days and I said okay well if the mail list can get me to 250 but opening up to Patreon everybody I, I can get to five um and we just you know slowly built that over time you know there was another big push I think we got to 2500 and then I lost my day job for a year no. and everybody everybody kids you know Scalzi and Wendy and everybody please sign up for Gamma's Pager she's gonna die <laughs> which was true which was true uh, health insurance is super expensive. It was a shitty time. Um, and that really bumped it up to, um, I think we're at almost 4,000 uh, mm-hmm. at this point. And it's a it's a really great um, comp, which is, I feel like a pulp writer. Mm-hmm. Because pulp writers, you re- you literally were like, oh shit, I have to pay the rent. Send out the story. And they send you a check that's the equivalent of the rent at the time. But you're also a classic writer. William Faulkner did the same thing. Right, yes. Anyway, oh my gosh, yeah. right? Um, so yeah, so this to me is, it actually does provide, if you have an audience that you can bring with you, mm-hmm. um, and it does provide uh, to provide you the ability to create and mm-hmm. to make money creating, which is wonderful. All right, so we, we've talked about the highs and we've talked about the lows, and there is a signature question that they ask um, in every episode of this podcast, which is, um, what is the thing that gets you through the kind of low moments of writing, the treat, the reward, the thing that you turn to uh, when it's not going well to re-energize you? Do you have something like that? I watch a lot of junk uh, science fiction shows. What did we watch last night? Cyber something. I don't know. It was terrible. It was I love like cyber they were, something. They were yeah. clearly 
half filming a porno in another <laughs> studio next door and then then just doing this other sci-fi thing on the side. Um, I watch a lot of junk stuff. You know, and actually, I was re-watching The Witcher as well. The Witcher very much fills my pulp uh, pulp uh, fantasy heart need. Mm-hmm. Um, so I enjoy that as well. But yeah, sometimes it's just, um, you know, my... I came up in science fiction mainly from the shows and then started reading, I think really more into science fiction when I was 12 or 13. And because my dad just would rent like tons of B movies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like we had said, that was our, our time, our family time to be there Friday and Saturday nights. We would just watch these junk, you know, cyber, this cyber, the yeah. apocalypse cyber. Um, and they just bring me joy. I think about that so much just because the, so much of what draws people into a relationship with, either genre or just literature as a whole is that kind of pulpy stuff, um, garbagey stuff, the stuff you're supposed to disavow later, right? Probably you read it as a teenager, right? Or <laughs> watched it as a teenager, right? And and there's a weird sort of dance around, um, you know, you can't teach that stuff in the classroom. You can't write about it, right? Like there's no real way to kind of work through it. I, I'm starting a book series about that kind of material with uh, mm-hmm. my friend, Ben Robertson. Um, because it's, it's, you know, it is the thing that brings so many people into a close relationship with art, but, uh, you know, the, the prestige economy can't recognize it. So I'm, I'm, I like that that's a, a source of renewal for you. I think it's for a lot of us, we're all like still secretly, you know, watching those things and not talking about it as much as we should. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've read all the old uh, Howard Conan novels that are hugely racist, hugely sexist, but I love just the, the, the idea. I know he's swiping through this this uh, army of rats and the piles of rats <laughs> piling up around him there's just i don't know there is there's something i just love about uh about pulp so well guys this was such a fun conversation thank you so much for being in dialogue with us and as we approach the end of another show john John and I would like to thank the Society for Novel Studies for its sponsorship of the podcast and acknowledge support from Brandeis University, the Mellon Connected PhD program, and Duke University. Nai Kim is our production intern and designer, and Claire Ogden is our sound engineer. Recent and upcoming dialogues include Ulka Anjaria in conversation with Madhuri Vijay and Michael Johnston talking to George Saunders about his first novel, Lincoln and the Bardo, but maybe not his last. So from all of us here at Novel Dialogue, thanks for listening. And if you liked what you heard, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.